Okay, well, I'm pleased to be joined by uh, my friend, Justin Ralph, who's a manager at Jada Solutions. Uh, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic today, and it's something that often is an afterthought for a lot of uh, companies and property owners, and that's hazardous materials and indoor air quality. So thanks for joining me on the call, Justin. No problem. Thanks for having me. So a lot of times that is an afterthought for, for companies that are looking to lease space or buy a property or for uh, property owners that are looking to buy it is to leave that almost to the last minute or forget about it altogether. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the general concept of asbestos or mold. Uh, but where do you think that that ranks in terms of priority on when someone's looking at a property on where they should be ranking some of these materials? Well, I think you're absolutely right when you say that sometimes it becomes an afterthought. I think that uh, in the process of choosing a space or choosing a a uh, space to lease or to rent or to buy, uh, people are looking at what they can do to that space. You know, they're looking at what their leasehold improvement is going to look like, what their build out is going to look like. And they sometimes forget to look at what's beneath the surface of what they're looking at. And it can rank low on the priority scale, depending on the age of the building or the, the type of facility that you're looking at. But it also can creep up in cost if there's something unknown that isn't considered beforehand. And uh, that creeping costs can surprise a lot of people or catch them off guard in terms of their budgets for their build outs. So in addition to asbestos and mold, what are some of the other ones that are, are triggers that you guys come across and, and you'd warn or caution people against? Yeah, for sure. Asbestos and mold is right up there on the list. I think those are the buzzwords that people know uh, pretty well. Um, the, the other one is lead. So lead being in older paints or sometimes in tiles, in glazing on tiles and that sort of thing, it's something that people don't think of right away that uh, is still out there in the world. It's still out there in the, in the world of building materials. And it can definitely cause issues when it comes to um, how to remove those items that contain it. I think that would be the best one that I would think. There, there's also PCBs and, and ozone depleting substances and things like that, that are not really on the forefront of what you see in the media or the buzzwords like asbestos and mold. Um, but those are easier to contain, not quite as expensive as what you would see from a lead abatement or mold remediation or asbestos abatement. So why do we see asbestos or vermiculite or lead? Why do we even see those in buildings in the first place? Uh, the reason that we see them in buildings is because it's this product ever found. Uh, it basically, it's indestructible. It's a, it's a naturally occurring substance of fiber that exists in rock or in, in the ground. And um, it's indestructible. It doesn't break down over time. So it was used to bond things. It's fireproof. It's a great insulator. Um, it, uh, it's just such a great product that it was used in mass quantities early on, you know, throughout the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and then when they discovered that the nature of the product that it doesn't break down is what actually causes the health problems, uh, and that's when it became less used and, and obviously cancer causing and that sort of thing. So. So when a company is looking to lease a space or a property investor is looking at buying something, they can't walk into a building and just see asbestos. They might see mold. Uh, they might see indications of some of these things. But where, where do you guys as consultants come into this uh, to help identify where these actually are? Um, well, the, the person that's purchasing the property or that's looking into these types of things can educate themselves on the types of products that may contain uh, the, the asbestos containing substances, that sort of thing, you know, plasters, textures, a lot of people think it's in drywall, it's not necessarily in drywall, it's mostly in the mud, it was mixed into the mud of, of drywall, 
uh, as a strength element to, to create a, a great bond in, in the mud, essentially. And so um, they can educate themselves on those types of products and where they exist and, and realize how much of those exist, as well as the age of the building is, is also super important. Um, the age of the construction, anything prior to 1980, essentially, is uh, it can be suspect and some after 1980 as well, because when they did eliminate the use of it, they didn't pull everything from the shelves. They, they basically let it date out itself. So there are still products being used after 1979, after 1980 that may contain. Um, what we do is we sample those products and test them for asbestos content and then report back and then uh, consult on the remediation or abatement of that, of that material. So touching on that, because I think that's a great point with uh, talking about the remediation or the abatement, do you necessarily have to pull out all the asbestos if you find it? No, not at all. Um, asbestos is not dangerous to, to human life at all if it's contained, if it's not disturbed, essentially. Uh, when it becomes airborne, that's when it becomes a problem. So if you do have a project that has uh, a flooring, for example, that contains a lot of things, a lot of re uh, renovations in the past, uh, have just encapsulated. So it just went over top of, of the asbestos containing product and that's perfectly fine. And if you're in a building that, that has things that is encapsulated, it's perfectly safe. Um, however, with more and more renovation happening kind of the modernizations happening, people are seeing this uh, less and less of encapsulating more about removal, get it out of the building so that they don't have to deal with it in the future. Uh, but in the past, they've definitely encapsulated a lot and that is perfectly safe. Uh, it's just a matter of it gets a little bit complicated down the road when somebody else wants to renovate yeah. layers of asbestos containing material. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, so walk me through a process. Let's say someone's looking at a property uh, and it was built in the 70s or early early 80s if there's still some remnants of old material that were used. So let's say a 40, 40 year old building or so. What, what do you typically look for? Are you doing a full comprehensive audit to look for asbestos, vermiculite, mold, lead? Are you looking for everything possible depending on, on the year? How does that process work? Uh, it's kind of a yes and no answer. It really depends on what the goal of the client is. So what we do is we consult with the client first to say, okay, what is your goal for the property? If it is a complete gut, a complete modernization, then absolutely. We, we do what's called a full hazardous material survey. When people think hazardous material survey, they think just asbestos. Not necessarily the case. We talked a little bit about mold and lead. There's also mercury, PCBs, ozone depleting substances, any kind of chemicals that may have been left over but from the previous tenant. Uh, those all things are surveyed or documented, uh, observed. And then of course with the asbestos, we actually physically take samples of the um, suspect containing materials and then report back to say, okay, this is what's happening. If let's, for example, say they only want to renovate one wing or it's a warehouse or something like that, what we do is we want to evaluate the most economical way of sampling based on what their end outcome is or what their end goal is for the property. And so um, sometimes we do complete surveys of every material that we see that could be asbestos containing or hazardous material containing. And sometimes we say, okay, let's just focus on this room or this wing and then future considerations for some of the other things. There is also, you can make assumptions based on what you're finding in, in one space over another. All of the sampling criteria though, however, is dictated by the Alberta Asbestos Abatement Manual. So there are a certain number of samples that we need to take in order to uh, clarify or to be in line with the Alberta Asbestos Abatement Manual so that when a demolition certificate is required or a sale of a property is required and you need to report these findings, everything is on the up and up and everything is in line with uh, what the legislative standard is. 
So if there is, if you do discover that there's asbestos or lead, uh, the the next step is coming up with a remediation or abatement plan. So how, how does that work? What's, what's the process involved in that? Again, same, similar kind of idea. We want to understand the end goal first. Uh, we want to understand what's happening. Uh, and then there's some considerations. Uh, most of the considerations is what type of material is it? How friable is it? Uh, what level of risk does that require to remove or to remediate the substance? For example, you can't be sanding off lead-based paint on the outside of a building. You know, there's, there's ways to um, maneuver with your remediation or your abatement that have to be considered with the economics of the project. Uh, a good example is uh, there was a client that called me the other day who had a church they were going to demolish. And it turned out that there was some lead paint on the outside of that church. And the end goal was to remove it completely or to remove the church completely. So there was no real, uh, there was no real reason to pull the entire, or to sand or, or scrape off all of the, the lead containing paint. It could be disposed of with the building material. So we try to take the end goal and try to create a plan that makes sense from a legislative standpoint, from a health standpoint, and then from an economic standpoint for, for the client themselves, for the demolition contractor in this case, or for the general contractor in a, a remediation or a modernization type scenario. So it, it's very variable. However, there's still guidelines set out with the Alberta Asbestos Abatement Manual. So we need to make sure that we're considering those when we're looking at the economics of the project. And I think that's what can surprise people. If all of a sudden they find a friable material that has to be removed under a high-risk abatement, which means building a containment and, and doing things methodically and disposing of them all properly, all the materials properly, um, those bills can add up very quickly. And sometimes it wasn't built into a budget or it wasn't a contingency of a budget for a leasehold improvement or a modernization. And I think that's where people are caught off guard sometimes with um, the work that we do and the work that we monitor for abatement contractors. I think you bring up a number of good points, Sarah. And the, the one thing that's that's percolating for me is just the complexity uh, of how how many variables go into into the process that you're you're looking at. And I, I think it, to our earlier point, it is an afterthought because a lot of people don't even think of this when they're going through the process. They're doing a space design or they're they might look at an environmental site assessment or the engineering components of the building, but to actually dig deeper below the the surface level uh, and actually look what might be behind there is, is imperative. So I, I guess that leads to the next question that I'd have for you is uh, assuming that uh, a company or a property investor is, is looking at this in the early stages as part of their due diligence, what are, what are some of the uh, timelines involved in doing some of this hazardous material uh, analysis uh, and then even a ballpark cost on what someone could expect? Yeah, so everything is relatively based on the size of the building or um, the amount of complexity that it requires for us to complete a survey, for example. So your first step, obviously, is meeting that client, understanding the property. If it's a giant warehouse, it doesn't have much in the way of drywall or, you know, or materials that are visible that you can, that you can figure it out. It can be much less of a cost than what, a, for example, a school would be or an old office building or something like that that has plenty of drywall, you know, mastics and insulations and possibly layers that you don't see. Um, so the determination is really based on the size as well as the complexity of the building materials within that, within that facilities, for, so to speak. The, from there, we do what's called a survey. So going around looking at what we can take as samples and, uh, and what we can build to, to understand the impact of the renovation. 
And that can be done in a semi-destructive way or destructive way. A lot of the times we run into obstacles with occupied buildings or non-occupied buildings. And we can't poke holes in the wall or cut a piece out of the wall because people need their office space or they need to be in the facility for training or whatever else it might be. And so that can lead to having to make some assumptions and having to get creative in the way that sample collection happens. It's very difficult to say what to expect in terms of a cost estimate because there are so many variables in size and amount of materials, um, but they can range anywhere from $5,000 to you know, $20,000 for a large facility that requires, you know, multiple crawl spaces and ladders access or the number of different styles of ceiling tile you have. Uh, all that square footage in terms of drywall mud and flooring leveling compound, that all matters when it comes to the amount of time it takes for the survey. As it pertains to sample analysis, well, typically samples are done in three days or four days, but the reporting on that is complex in that we build a report that has the pictures of where the samples were taken, a map, so that you can have a good inventory of that facility to show your demolition contractor or to show the general contractor when they're selecting an abatement contractor um, to get accurate bids. And that's the super important part. You need a good solid survey report to get a good accurate bid from an abatement contractor. Um, again, when they open a wall and find another layer of wall that you may not have discovered in a survey, the cost again escalates. So our goal is to try to avoid all of those escalations and all of those surprises by doing an effective survey. Of course, then you get into the abatement and then it's when the air monitoring comes in and that would be our role in that type of project as well. So with, with the abatement or remediation, I'm assuming that any contractor is going to want to see a hazardous material assessment uh, of the property before they even commence doing demolition or renovations of it. Yeah, it's actually can be a requirement on the demo permit as well. So um, the uh, regulatory bodies would request to see that hazardous materials have either A, been removed or have been investigated at least um, before beginning the demolition or, or issuing a demo permit. Um, so yeah, there is some diligence there that has to be done uh, when you're considering a dem demolition, demolishing a uh, facility, especially one older than 1980. What, what I find fascinating about it is it, 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 it is a cost. There's no denying that there is a cost to having a, a survey done on the property. Uh, and I think that probably intimidates or scares some people off from doing it in the first place. But on the back end of that, not doing it opens yourself up to a ton of uncertainty, exposure, risk, additional costs down the road that you might not have been prepared for. So like everything in commercial real estate, if you're spending a little bit of money up front and, and in that due diligence, it's typically going to cover your, your backside risk uh, down the road. Uh, are, are you seeing a lot of comments on that from uh, clients that you're dealing with? Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest one is the timeline. So you have a scheduled project and a schedule a scheduled um, construction budget, and uh, and a timeline for that. And all of a sudden, you open a wall and vermiculite spills out. That timeline to get that fixed or repaired or to cleaned up properly um, can really extend. And of course, in in this business, time is money, and especially in the construction business, time is money. And those are unexpected costs. Really, are what we see the most. Um, so having a good thorough survey at the beginning helps to. Uh, alleviate those things. Uh, the other part of it too is uh, people may not find that they think of is historical documentation of renovation. So a lot of the times we, we renovate a facility or uh, we're looking at a facility that has no historical documentation of renovations where they may have covered up some flooring or they may have covered up some, some wall material that we didn't know about prior to starting a construction. And those timeline delays in when you open a wall and find those things or vermiculite spills out, uh, those are the things that really kind of add up in costs and surprise 
and can eat into a contingency budget for a GC right away. Yeah, and, and I think that just emphasizes why it's so important to do do these ahead of time. And and a lot of people don't think about it, but uh, it, it is very important to do so that you are covering that that risk on the back end. Uh, so with the hazardous material, the next uh, part I wanted to get your insight on was was just indoor air quality. And, and this has definitely become a lot more of a, a rising issue over the last 10 or 15 years from my perspective, uh, especially in, on, in the industrial side where you might be dealing with a machine shop or a heavy industrial uh, uh, bay, where 10, 15 years ago, you'd, you could walk into some of these businesses and, and it was hard to breathe that, that that air quality was so bad. Now you're starting to see makeup air units and, and more of a conscious effort to control that air quality. So I'd like to get your thoughts on it from, I, I guess, just in general, like whether it's an office building or a retail building, all the way to an industrial. What, what's your guys' sense on the importance of indoor air quality how, and how you measure it? Um, indoor air quality is massively important, especially when it comes to worker productivity, uh, you know, worker satisfaction, worker health. All these now are, are buzzwords in our society, and they're all very much things that with the power of the internet and the amount of communication and information that people have access to, somebody working in an office that can Google indoor air quality if they have a sniffle and find a ton of information. Some of that information can be scary and, and, and throw people off a little bit. And some of that information is great information that uh, educates them as to their workspace. And employers now know that people have access to this information and that they're going to be asking questions of them if they feel like there's a problem with their indoor air quality. From the industrial standpoint, it's really easy. I mean, if you're welding something or you're manufacturing and you're grinding or, or you're painting or, or sandblasting, those indoor air quality concerns are very in your face. They're very upfront and relevant in terms of um, you can see them, you can, they're happening there. In an office space, it's much more difficult. You don't have the welding, you don't have uh, the grinding and the, the, the painting and that sort of thing. So people are a little bit more suspect and it's harder to determine Air, indoor air quality problem uh, with an office space. So at opposite ends of the spectrum, they're very different in how we deal with them. Uh, on the industrial side, it's a little easier in terms of investigating and understanding the source of the problem. Uh, it gets very, very, it's not like CSI. You can't put a device in a room and it tells you everything that's in the air. You have to be looking for a specific thing or a specific chemical and understanding the occupational exposure limits and how those are, are relate to your workers and the tasks that they do um, can become very complicated or it can be very simple in the case of welding fume is kind of the easiest example. And so we, what we do is we try to evaluate that and measure those parameters uh, using different devices and different media and different methodologies and produce a report for an employer to say, hey, this is what your exposure potential is and these are the recommendations to uh, to overcome that, whether that's PPE or mechanical controls or engineering controls. Um, so it's a little more straightforward. The office situation, however, is a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's not as easy to determine exactly what to look for in terms of if somebody has a complaint. And there are a lot of factors that go into uh, an office setting. Uh, a lot of people can Google it and read about sick building syndrome and automatically assume that that's what they have if they're, you know, having sniffles at the office or trouble breathing or every time they go, one of the common complaints is, I'm fine at home, but when I'm at work, I'm always stuffed up. And there's so many factors involved with that. The most common in an office setting, the most common thing that we see is fresh air. The problem is, is that these buildings are not getting enough fresh air. Over time, the efficiencies in heating and, and ventilation in buildings 
came about through windows, better and better windows, high efficiency windows. And these windows are not opening a lot of the time. And so what happens is, is that the rooftop units are not considering the fact that um, there's a buildup of all this carbon dioxide through fax machines, well, not fax machines anymore, but computers and, and things like that, and people working in these office spaces, and it's not allowing the building to refresh in fresh air, and our windows are high efficiency, so they don't open, they're sealing everything off, and they're relying on these rooftop units to recycle air, and a lot of the times, that's what the stem of the problem is. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I don't don't really think about uh, office uh, as often because you're right. Industrial. If you walk into a into a paint booth, you're going to get hit with that literally as you walk into the space. Versus being in an office, there's there's nothing to see other than how you might feel. Uh, so, what are some of the solutions that 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 can happen? Like uh, we talked about some of the mechanical controls and makeup air and industrial. What are some of the things that you can do uh, in an office space if, if you notice that their indoor air quality isn't as up to where it should be? Our number one recommendation in indoor air quality is open a window. Get as much fresh air into the environment as possible. Uh, however, that's not always possible and it's not always feasible in terms of what's happening with your neighbors and maybe there's dust or construction or something like that that may be causing additional problems. So um, your typical indoor air quality parameters are measured through um, devices, usually data logging devices, and we can measure the office space to see what's happening. Sometimes it's a particulates issue or dust issue, um, and sometimes it can be a housekeeping issue or it can be, um, you know, your next door neighbor is renovating and they're using a paint that's irritable or, or something like that or has a VOC level. So we do have devices that we can measure indoor air quality and provide data feedback to uh, make recommendations on what types of changes we can we can do. Sometimes we have run into mold situations. So, you know, everybody's been in an office that has stain on a tile or or um, has some water issues or has had a water leak in the, in the past and that may be causing problems behind the scenes, behind a wall or, or something like that, that we can investigate and, and try to understand. Um, rule of thumb about mold is that if you see mold, you have mold and you should remove it. There's no point in testing your air if you see or visualize it. So, you know, some money saving tips there would be, don't worry about calling a consultant. If you see it, clean it, remove it. However, after you clean it and remove it, it would be a good idea to get some air checks done to make sure that um, you've removed everything properly and there's nothing lingering. Uh, but mold is an easy one because we can visualize it, we can see it. The dust, however, and the, the VOCs, that's a little bit more complicated and that does require some uh, data logging devices and some measurements. And, and those are easily done through some monitoring, uh, indoor air quality monitoring devices that we, uh, that we use with our clients. So do you have a lot of clients that, that use your services regularly? Like it's just ongoing air quality testing or, or, or do they try and keep ahead of it? Or is it only if you know, a problem comes up? Uh, it's typically only when a problem comes up. Uh, we do have obviously repeating clients. I mean, uh, we do have some that if they change a process in their facility, industrial is much easier. If they change a process or add a ton of welders or have a shutdown coming up or something like that, uh, it's it's much more easier to predict when, when those types of air quality changes may happen. However, the office setting, uh, it's a little less easy. It typically is after a renovation or or um, before an occupancy, let's call and say, okay, hey, can we just make sure that everything is safe to occupy here? Uh, or if they've had a water leakage or something like that, or, or a mold cleanup, they want to make sure that the area is safe to occupy. So in terms of repeat customers, once we've cleared up, so to speak, the, the air or cleared the, the problem, then 
it typically is no reason to come back unless there's a major change in, in the layout or, or the operation of the facility in, in from an office space perspective. The biggest thing I think that people should take away from indoor air quality in an office space is that everybody has different sensitivities. Uh, for example, 10 people walk through the bay, if the bay exists anymore, I'm not sure if it does, but uh, you walk through the perfume section at the bay or Sears or wherever else. Of 10 people, one person may get a headache just from walking through that, that perfume aisle. And that's a sensitivity. It's not necessarily a problem with indoor air quality, but everybody has different sensitivities. So what we tell people is that if less than 10% of the people in the area are complaining of headache or, or nasal sensitivity or stuffy chest or whatever, it may be a sensitivity issue. Um, and it may save some cost savings just to either maybe relocate that person to a different area, get them into an office that can open a window, um, make sure they're taking their breaks in a, in a fresh air setting. Those types of things can be, can be easily adjusted uh, instead of just investing in a massive study of indoor air quality. So again, we have to look at that scenario and say, okay, what's reasonable and what makes sense for their workflow as well so that we can provide the right advice and provide the right reporting and, and monitoring for that situation. Yeah, that's very well explained. And I think that that dates you because I don't think Sears is around anymore. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, we, we didn't actually teach snow racers anymore. Yeah, we didn't do this interview in 1985. Uh, this, <laughs> is, <laughs> this is a modern interview. Just got back from Blockbuster. I said seven, <laughs> seven days, seven dollars. Yeah. Well, I think what, what, what I'd really stress is having a consultant like you guys uh, involved is important for a few reasons. Uh, one, you can explain a lot of the, how these processes work and, and really explain if there are sensitivity issues versus it being a real valid uh, problem. Uh, but I also think it's important uh, for those business owners that are, that are conscious of their employees' health uh, and, and co conscious uh, of that as well. So I, I think that that's really important. And then the third part, which we already touched on, is is just having almost an insurance policy. Spend the money up front, get in a sense of the, if there are any hazardous materials or if there are any air quality issues. Pay uh, pay the money up front uh, so that you can avoid having massive problems down the road. Uh, I, I think that that's that 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 in itself pays for itself. Uh, in return, uh, because you are avoiding those big problems down the road. So I really do appreciate you jumping on this call to to explain that. Uh, I'll, I'll leave a, a link to uh, to Jada Solutions uh, in the description. Also uh, leave a link to your LinkedIn uh, as well. And, and I know you guys are getting started on YouTube as well. So that's that's, that's exciting too. Yeah, we're trying. We're, we're not quite as fancy as you yet, but we're uh, <laughs> getting there. We've, uh, we've been reading some books and doing our homework and hopefully we'll be able to provide content and and provide some educate like our biggest thing is educate industry we really want to press um, that 10 years ago people didn't know a ton about asbestos or a ton about indoor air quality and it's getting better and better and better and more and more architects and gcs and and uh, you know renovations and contractor companies are getting to know this stuff better and better and it's getting better out there but we still have a long way to go to be recognized as something like you say that is proactive rather than reactive and that reactive stuff really costs costs money so we want to make sure that we're uh, educating the industry and, and providing as much uh, value as we can well and i think you hit the nail on the head there it's that that is what youtube uh thrives on is educating and uh, providing some value so i know that that's your guys mantra at jada and, and you personally justin so I, I think you guys are are well suited to to put more content on youtube and i think people will get a lot of uh, value from that 
yeah, I really appreciate it, Chad. I appreciate the time and uh, the opportunity to maybe help a few people understand things a little bit better. So anytime anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out. Appreciate it, Justin. Cool. Okay, take care, man. Thank you.